Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. And welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that strives to uphold the imaginary spirit of cricket in every episode. I'm your host, Benny, and this week, me and fellow co-host Mike had an opportunity to speak with former Australian cricketer and professional hair model in another timeline, Colin Miller. We spoke with Colin about his experience of being a part of Steve Waugh's legendary Aussie side, his exploits in a brief career that earned him the Australian Test Cricketer of the Year Award in 2001, his coaching aspirations and thoughts on cricket in America, and of course, his funky persona that endeared him to cricket fans of that era. All that and more, right after this. Colin Funky Miller, welcome to The Last Cricket. Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys, good morning. Good morning indeed. It's, it's weird, I would have never thought one day I would be talking to Colin Miller in the U.S., on a Saturday morning, and it's just weird how things turn out. Uh, but how have you been? It, it's you know before we get to, into your career in cricket, um, it's just weird because of the pandemic thing. You feel like the world has just flipped upside down. How have you been handling it over the past uh, couple of years? So living in, in Las Vegas has been interesting. I, I work in a resort um, for the Marriott Hotel and. Um, we, we literally furloughed all, all of my staff. I have 28 oh, wow. guys that work for me. We, so we furloughed literally everybody in the property um, apart from management and we stayed on and kept the property running. Um, we, we're a timeshare resort. So we actually, we actually had to stay open during the whole pandemic. So there was periods of time where we had one guest stay for three months, um, oh, wow. but the resort is open. But <laughs> Las Vegas was 100% shut. There was nothing to do. They were basically just in their room. Um, right. Getting out of their house, I'm different, some change of scenery. Uh, we all worked different shifts. I ended up working nights for about three and a half months. So it was weird to go on the roof of our resort and look down to the strip and not see a single person, not see a car or any lights on. It was it was really strange feeling over here. And then really since September last year, when we started to wind back up again and let people back into the state and 
Um, uh, we, we brought all our staff back on the last one we brought back on in December. We didn't lose any staff. Luckily, we, we hired everybody back. And now we're running, you know, up until probably three, four weeks ago, we were running about 96% occupancy every day. So Vegas is amazingly busy at the moment for a, a place that's still getting a, eight, 700 or 800 cases a day and unfortunately some right. deaths every day as well. But, but you know, the place has to survive. This is what Vegas is. It's, hospitality and without the hospitality there's no las vegas how and how have you been doing personally good yeah um luckily my wife and i we both work in, in my wife is with uh, one of the big casino companies as well and we both work all the way through and i got reduced to four days at one period which is good to go a long weekend but, <laughs> but apart from that we, we both got vaccinated really early on um we we haven't been sick ourselves, but we know a few people that have had the, the virus uh, right. who have been sick at various different stages. Some that we know have been incubated and some that just had to spend a few days at home, but it's weird the way it affects different people. We, we were at the hockey last night, uh, watching the Golden Knights, and there was 15 or 16,000 people there. We, we've been to a couple of Raiders games already, and there's you know 50 or 60,000 people at those games, and most people for, for a part are wearing their masks if they need to. And um, for the football, you need to be vaccinated. So you, you show your, your clear pass. And for the hockey, you don't need to be vaccinated. You just got to wear a mask. So people right. are coping and um, and seems to be life is getting back to how it was you know, 18 months ago. I'm, glad, I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, it, this has not left anyone untouched. And everyone has been coping in different ways and, you know, because everyone has been affected in different ways. So uh, I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Uh, so let's get into cricket. Let's get into your career. I remember the first time personally as an Indian fan, um, when I first saw you, this was when Australia were at the peak of their cricketing powers. You know, you had a legendary team, you know, probably 80 to 90% of all the players in that team could be considered legends now. Um, well, when you broke into the scene, especially as a, a spinner, you know, you had Shane Warne and you had Stuart McGill, who were kind of like, it was, it felt like it was the direct competition for the spinner spot between the two. And then you burst in, in 1998, you had a career for three years. And somehow at the peak of that in, in 2001, you were also named the Australian test player of the year. It, it's a fascinating trajectory, you know, how you, you know, you're getting in and establishing yourself for, for that amount of time. Um, but before you got into the side, were you even realistic of your chances of breaking into it, given how hot the competition was between uh, Warren and McGill? Yeah, you're right. It, it was an extraordinary team at that time, probably the best team Australia had had for in the last 30 or 40 years in, in reality. Um, I mean, we've got to remember, I was a medium pace bowler. So I was a new ball bowler my whole life um, mm -hmm. until I started playing cricket for Australia as a spinner. Um, so um, if I had never started to bowl spin uh, at state level, I would never have played for Australia as a medium pace bowler. There was too many fast bowlers in Australia going around, which is why I was just a journeyman, medium pace bowler who played for three states. And, you know, it was doing pretty well, getting 40, 50 wickets a year here and there. But, but I was never going to play for Australia. Um, but I could see there was, a, there was an opening there uh, for an off spin. There was really no one who had taken charge of the off spinning position. 
Right. Um, and I knew I could do it. I'd been doing it all my life in club cricket and, and in the nets practicing. Um, it was just something I enjoyed doing. Um, and then I convinced David Boone in the 97, 98, 96, 97 season to let me bowl spin and medium pace uh, for Tasmania. Um, and last year I took 67 wickets in first class cricket and the rest was history. And then you en- ended up being named the Australian Test Player of the Year in 2001. And again, we talked about the quality of players in Australian Test cricket at that moment. So, h- how did it feel to be recognized as the Test Player um, of the Year? That, that, was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool <laughs> to be, particularly in that team. Um, the fortunate thing for me was I felt really comfortable in the team right from the beginning. Uh, I'd been playing first class cricket for. 13 years at that stage. I'd played against all the guys in the same team. Back in the days when test players all played first-class cricket and club cricket as well, unlike today. Um, So you got to know the players very well. So I was accepted into the team very quickly. That was a very smooth transition for me. Uh, And then my role in the team was was pretty obvious. So I was going to bowl some spin. I was going to open the bowling occasionally, um, which really gave Steve Ward two options to how he wanted to use me. Uh, gives you that 11th player that's on the field. Um, and then there was just times where I, I just got in some situations where I got wickets uh, in a hurry and and we, we were winning every test match we played at that period. So if you did, if you did well on a test match, we, you were going to get some votes from the other guys in the media. So really during that 16 test period where we didn't lose a test match was really that period where I was named the test player of the year. All right. Well, as an Indian fan, we remember 2001 uh, as the year we broke uh, or we stopped Australia in its tracks for a brief period in time. Awesome, awesome, awesome test series, that one. Absolutely. Probably the, <laughs> the re- rebirth of test match cricket in the world, that, that series. Um, it, it garnered more interest around the world than any series had for many years. All right. So, uh, Colin, um, you mentioned you switched from, you know, bowling pace to off breaks um, and that really changed your career trajectory, right? And I I guess not too many bowlers do that today, but we have seen a lot of T20 bowlers like Rashid Khan and Sunil Narin um, who bowl very quickly, who bowl in the high 90s or um, low 90s at least. so considering that, uh, do you think that's an underrated skill that maybe more bowlers should have tried back then? And then I guess also wondering how, what do you think your chances were if you were playing today in T20 cricket? Well, first of all, I would love to play T20 cricket. Um, <laughs> I think I would have done all right. Been a, you know, two hours of spin and two hours of medium pace. That's a pretty hard day work, isn't it? So, and these guys have a pretty good life now. These bowlers can't complain too yeah. much. Um, I think the school of thought, the way that spinners were coached going back 20 years to 30 years ago, was they were always taught to get the ball above the batter's eyes uh, and get some loop in the ball and hit the pitch and give it time to grip and turn. Well, I never I never got coached as a spinner, so I, I was a self-taught spinner. And my theory was, well, I'm six foot tall. Um, when I let go of the ball, it's going to be coming from above my head another two feet. So now the ball's eight foot coming out of my hand, eight, eight foot height. There's no batsman in the world that are eight foot tall, so the ball's already above their eye level. Um, so they're all gonna, already going to move their eyes up and down. Now, in the, the old way of coaching off spin and any type of spin is to flight the ball and beat the batsman in flight. Well, if you're trying to beat a batsman in flight when it's 20 feet away, you're not going to beat him. A good batsman's not going to get beaten. And the, and the Indians prove that, and all the subcontinent players play that by playing it off the back foot and just turn you around. My whole thought process was I want to beat the batsman six feet away from his bat. So the faster I bowl, the more dip I'm going to get, late dip and drift. 
but I want to drag the batsman forward and then beat him in the flight so he's not quite there. Um, I got a lot of my wickets um, bat pad um, because I just got guys stuck in the crease or the, the ball wasn't quite there when I thought they could just pad it away or, or, or just block it away. So and I bowled around about 96 Ks an hour as well. Um, I was on a regular basis. My slow ball was like 92, 92 Ks. I didn't have much varieties, but but, I, but the, at the speed that you bowl and you know, with, with the indent of 2020 cricket and then all these athletes who are batsmen now who are big and strong and their bats hit the ball further than it ever has before, if you can keep the batsman in his crease and stop him from running at you, um, there's, there's more chance you have as a spinner in, in the modern day game. Right, absolutely. I think uh, it's a, we've had these conversations with other uh, T20 analysts as well, and they've been talking about how like talented spinners like Kuldeep Yadav, who bowl in you know lower 80s or sometimes even high 70s, they just give the batsmen so much time that they're able to adapt, and that's why the ability to bowl at a higher range is just so crucial in this game. Yeah, and then and you see there's, there's T20 cricketers in the world now that have uh, never played any first-class cricket, but they're very successful on the T20 circuit now. There's a young kid in Australia, um, um, Hatsaglou, actually a friend of mine's son. Um, I haven't seen, I never saw the kid growing up, but he was just playing club cricket in Melbourne. And now he plays in a big bash league. I think he's played in a couple other leagues around the world. He just bowls fast leg spin. Um, and, and, he, and he's successful at getting wickets. So he's gone from being club cricketer to a T20 professional. Yep, no, that's, that, that definitely feels like a career trajectory that's, a, you know, a lot more possible in this decade than it ever was before. Um, but I, I, we have to ask about your uh, blue hair incident for sure. Uh, I feel like that's thanks to YouTube and, and it's been well documented uh, about when you were bowling to uh, Courtney Walsh in, uh, against the West Indies in 2001 and he just got distracted to a point of laughter um, I guess there's two things that come to mind. One was, uh, was this sort of, uh, you know, funkiness in a team of really hard-nosed competitors? Uh, how is that perceived? Uh, you mentioned it was, uh, you, knew, you knew most of the guys before, so maybe it wasn't as, uh, as much of an issue getting accepted, but how, what did they think about your, uh, you know, just your style? <laughs> Um, again, it was it, it was it wasn't planned. I wasn't I didn't go to that test match planning to dye my hair blue. Um, I was hoping to go to that test match and be named in the one day squad uh, on the second day of the test match. That was when they normally named the squad for the rest of the summer. Um, and then I always had dreams of maybe doing it on a Friday night at the MCG in front of eighty thousand people, wearing coloured clothing with the coloured hair. That was that was my plan. Um, when they named the squad on the second morning uh, or at the end of the end of the first day it might have been um, I wasn't in the one day squad and I never played one day cricket for Australia uh, the one opportunity I did get to go to Kenya to play uh, in, a, in a world championship I tore a cup and couldn't go so my plan was derailed so there goes my Friday night plan one day cricket under the lights to well this is my last game of this of the summer um, being a test match let's do something for tomorrow and I just Called a hairdresser out of the blue and said, "Hey, um, I actually got the concierge at the hotel to call the hairdresser for me, and just asked them to bring some colour in, and they just happened to bring in blue. It could have been purple, it could have been green, it could have been any colour, but she just happened to bring in blue that night. Um, and so, walking out the next morning uh, at the team meeting, 
um, Steve Waugh, one of the two fast bowlers, to open the bowling just to get that last wicket. And I said to Steve, mate, I just spent $100 on my hair last night. It's blue. There's 45,000 people outside. I, I need to bowl the first over. And Steve had a laugh and they said, no problems, Cole, you can bowl the first over. And that's really how it, that's how it all came about. I'm just surprised by Steve Waugh's reaction there because now, uh, you know, if, if you read about the Australian side now, um, you know, like Justin Langer as a coach has some very high expectations of his players. Um, I read recently that, you know, when Nathan Ellis uh, made his debut, he, 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 had a, he had a great debut. I think he picked up a hat trick on debut in, in his T20 national, but Justin Langer pulled him up for wearing jewelry, I believe. Um, so I feel yeah, like wasn't, I, it wasn't even his debut. He was just going on to take uh, as a substitute, and he took a catch. Oh, and he okay. Came off taking a good catch, and Justin Langer gave him a really hard time for wearing some sort of jewelry. So I feel like yeah, he would have struggled <laughs> if Langer was going yeah, to I played with Justin. I remember Justin was in the team the whole time I was there as well, and and I always wore a diamond in my ear or, or a gold loop. Um, uh, I don't have tattoos. I'm not a tattooed up guy or anything like that. But my hair was just the one. The one thing that I never did was was try to disrespect the game of cricket. Mm. Um, I wasn't doing it to be disrespectful. I was doing it just to express myself, and, and people understood that. And at the at the Sydney Cricket Ground, it's a very traditional set of members. And if you know the ground where the players sit, is right in the members' grandstand. Um, and not one member said anything to me about it, apart from, hey, we really like your hair. It's good fun. It's brought a bit of life to the game. So, and that was a response I got from around the world as well. Um, I didn't read, I don't remember reading any negative media about it. Um, it was just a bit of fun. It was never disrespecting the game. But can you talk about the culture of that, that Australian team for, for, for a bit? Because, you know, as, uh, as an Indian fan or a, any neutral fan, you know, that Aussie side were known for the pride that they had, you know, wearing the baggy green. And they always had this, you know, we always knew that if we, if the Indian team played Australia, you know, it was, uh, it was going to be a scrap. It was going to be a fight because they would never give an inch. And everything about their cricket, uh, and we're including the verbals in there too, is, is that it was like never take a step back. It was always hard at you. And I feel like now, you know, almost 20, well, 20 years on, um, that is not there to that extent. Maybe it's the quality mm -hmm. of the players, maybe just attitudes have changed. But being part of that side, how much do you think was that like a conscious effort? to create that image or was that just something more natural? It was about the pride of playing for Australia. It's a very Australian way of playing cricket. Um, right from the time that I was growing up, starting my first grade debut in club cricket. Um, my, my club captain was Ray Bright, the Australian spin bowler. Um, Merv Hughes was the opening bowler in my team at club cricket. Tony Dottermade uh, bowled from the other end and batted number four for us. We had another left arm fast bowler, Glenn Belkin, who played a lot of first class cricket for Victoria and, and uh, Queensland. Um, and and uh, the captain of our, and the, and the wicketkeeper of our team, Lindsay, um, was a tough, hard, old fashioned cricketer. And so, right from the age of 16 to 17, when I started playing first grade cricket in Australia, <clears throat> I was brought up before these hardened cricketers. Pardon me. Um, and then that was the same club cricket. Like I said, back in those days, test cricketers played club cricket, not just right. first, not just first grade. 
So there was in playing in Victoria, it was quite often you're going to play against guys that all played first class cricket, or some had played test cricket and they come back and they were going back down through the grades. Um, and then when you played first class cricket back in those days, I started when I was 19 playing first class cricket. Um, and every test cricketer was playing first class cricket back then for their state. And every state cricketer was trying to be a test cricketer. So it was it was a hard, hard cricket. And these Australian guys that were coming back into state cricket, they were hardened individuals. They'd been playing against the West Indies in the mid-80s and getting themselves annihilated every second time they played a test match because West Indies were dominating the world at the time. Um, so when they got an opportunity, I think, to, to dominate another team, or when they got the ability to put a team together that was dominant, I think that naturally just came out that, you know, it's, it's not arrogance. It was just a perceivement from the world that we're being arrogant, but it's just confidence in your own ability um, and hard nose because it is, it's, it's only 11 guys that play for their country every week. Um, and the guys that are in the 11, they want to stay in the 11 as long as possible. So it's almost to a degree you're going to do what you need to do to stay in the team. <clears throat> but it was it was sometimes the verbal part of it might have gone too far from the Australian side of things. But um, the the beauty of what you what, what you see in world cricket now is now other countries are doing it back to Australia, and Australia I think has shocked some. Oh, you're not yeah. supposed to do that to me. Right. And India is the classic example. Um, Sachin was probably one of the first ones that started to talk back to the bowlers, uh, and now with Virat in the team and, and, and the confidence of the Indian team now in all forms of the game, they're not going to take a step backwards anymore. And that's been a real turn turnaround in the in the world cricket game is that the Indians now are the best team in the world. Now, I know they didn't win the test the, the test match whatever, of, the, of the century, whatever it was, against New Zealand, but they're still the best team in the world. And there was a comment made by one of the Indian players recently that we could play our third 11 against most teams in the world now and beat them. Which is probably true because you've got a billion people over there that all love to play cricket and they're all hiding in the first class game somewhere. Australia's picking literally from 76 guys for their test match team. Um, the other West Indies now have been struggling now for probably almost 20 years to get a test team back together again. Pakistan, through no fault of their own, but through isolation, have, have, have struggled. Sri Lanka have struggled since their superstars stopped playing the game. And India have just kept going upward and leaps and bounds. And it probably started with the IPL um, and, and that probably brought a lot of players together from different teams into one team. And then when you get to know each other now, you can you can have a bit more banter on the field because really off the field, you're friends, uh, but on the field, you, you, you're combatants and you're really trying to fight hard. I think that's really the legacy of that Australian side that I feel like a lot of the teams these days, and like you mentioned, a good example is Indian cricket led by Virat Kohli is... I feel like a lot of it is just modeled on that Australian side, just the uh, leaving aside the skills for a moment, just in terms of how you stand up for yourself and how you stand up against your opponents. Um, but coming back to you, so you retired uh, in 2001 and you know you had a brief foray into coaching. I know you were shortlisted for the Bangladesh uh, national team coaching job after the 2007 World Cup. Looking back now, especially considering your job right now, do you feel like you could have done more and contributed more to cricket as a coach, uh, especially now with the advent of T20 leagues all over the world? Mm. Yeah, if you had the foresight and knowing there was going to be this new game invented uh, you know, a year <laughs> after you retired. Um, 
No, I, I would love to have done the Bangladesh job and I interviewed for it twice um, before they went the, another route. And I think it would have been a really interesting time to coach in Bangladesh. Um, my The appeal for me was it was an emerging nation. Right. Um, I knew they I knew they loved cricket. Uh, I just I just come out of a pretty strong Australian cricket setup um, and first class career, and I thought I had something to offer there. But coaching is really not a great career. It's not it's not a long term career for most people. Um, and then right. if you want to you want to make a long term career, you got to be prepared to spend ten months of the year traveling around the world. Um, right. And then you're going to get fired eventually. Then you got to find a new team to work for, and that might be not in your country anymore. So. You know, I have friends like Ryan Campbell now has been in Hong Kong. Now he's coaching in Holland. Um, so he's really lucky as a Dutch wife or she's Dutch by birth and he gets to go home to her country and work now. But, you know, Holland needs to keep winning. Otherwise, you know, he's going to lose his job. Then where does he go after Holland? Does he stay within that nation of cricket or does he go back to Australia and try to break into first-class cricket? Right. It's a, it's a really tough career. Um, not something I would have enjoyed doing because, uh, first of all, I wouldn't have had the patience. And then... Um, and I need a little bit of security in life. So that's happy where I am right now. Well, you're settled in the US. You have an American wife. And I know that in, back in 2013, you were also uh, you know, an ambassador for the sport appointed by the USA Cricket Association. Um, so was that always like an allure that maybe I could work in the cricket setup here in the US? Was that ever no, a that, consideration? No, that, that came about really um, by just an approach made by um, Cricket, uh, Cricket America, um, whether I'll be interested in getting involved with coaching uh, or doing some work with the team or, or the setup at, at some stage. But unfortunately, cricket in America hasn't been run very well for a long, long time. Um, it's getting better now that the ICC have, have stepped in and they've appointed ICC people into positions. And in fact, Richard Doan was in Vegas last night. Um, who's now, I think, CEO of, of America, Cricket America or, or president or something. Um, we were supposed to meet up for a drink, but he, he went for a walk and the sun got him, got heat stroke walking around Las Vegas yesterday. Wow. So he spent the night in bed, but he's on his way to Texas today. He's driving to Texas with his wife to take up his new role with Cricket, with cricket in America. And um, So there's he wants to talk to me about something in the, in the future, whether it's just an ambassadorship or maybe I can pop in once a month and say hello to the team or whatever. I'm prepared to do whatever I can to help American cricket because I can see the future of cricket in this country. It's going to be T20. It's not going to be test match cricket. It might be one day cricket and T20 cricket. Uh, and they become a nation that just plays around the world playing T20 cricket. There's enough interest in the country. You know, I've played some cricket down in California. I've been over to Florida and seen cricket over there. And, um, I, I came and did T20 cricket here in 2006 or something, 2008. Um, when we toured around playing some T20 games around the country, and the interest is here, just, they just they just need to get themselves organised and get the sport so it's made for the sport and not for individuals to make money out of the game. Uh, it's unfortunately, I think the way it was set up in the past was individuals thought it was an opportunity for them to make money rather than an opportunity for the country to have a national cricket team. Uh, and now I think that's the direction the ICC have got them moving in. And I think it's a much better setup now, and I'll be more than prepared to get involved now. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So me and Mike, we have we have played cricket at you know like the local or club levels, or um, you know where we live. And at least for me, the striking thing is a lot of the cricketers are of Indian descent or Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, the odd Australian. Uh, 
but we don't really see, uh, and Mike, you, I don't know if it's different for you, but uh, I've not seen any American um, take up the sport. Um, why is it so hard to, I, I know there are so many reasons for this, but for you, what is the most striking or very clear reason as to why Americans don't have struggled to take to cricket? You know, compared to, I, don't think, I just like don't that. think they've seen enough of it yet. They need to. It needs to be on television, and and you okay. need to get it in schools where a bunch of ten-year-olds can start playing cricket, learn what the basics of the game. It's very, it's a very tough game to learn if you're already twenty years old. You're going to start playing cricket all of a sudden. Um, it's a game that you need to play most of your life, like most sports in the world. If you're going to be good at, it, you've got to be, you've got to grow up playing that sport. So yeah. they've got to get cricket on TV in the US to start with. Um, even if it's not the US team playing, just start, start showing the IPL, or, and they got to show they got to show on ESPN or somewhere that is accessible right. to people to watch, not have to pay a fifty dollars subscription to go and watch two games of cricket. I mean that's silly. You got to make it free to air, um, and then you got to get it into the schools at the, the junior school levels. Uh, I know there are some colleges playing cricket now, but right. then you got to get then you got to get your first American-born superstar, and that's mm. that's the key. To getting the sport to grow in this country, in my mind, is it doesn't matter what nationality their background is, but they've got to be American-born. Once you get right. those American-born kids playing cricket, and then you're going to get more interest. So it might be you might be talking 20 years down the road before you have a fully American team. Because um, you look at the team now, as you say, there's a lot of West Indian guys are in there, some Indian guys from other subcontinent areas, and um, there's no there's no and there's not an American aspect of the team. So people maybe don't think, well, it's not really American cricket team, it's the international cricket team playing for America. But that's very similar around the world, though. Look at all the, the next-level countries, for example. Yeah. There's people from the world playing all those teams now. So, And in T20, I don't think it really matters um, where you come from, as long as you're playing for a team. Just really look at, look at soccer, for example. Um, if you have that draft system where you just pick any player from the world that's, and you just have a team, and you don't call it a country, um, then I, then you can call it. Yeah, if you know what you call it, call it Team USA. Don't call it the American Cricket Team or something. Just call it another name, buy another name or yeah. another identity, and that way you might be able to get more interest. And then you get interest because it doesn't really matter if you're not all Americans playing for you. It's Team USA. Do you think uh, if cricket was in the Olympics, that would make a difference? Uh, it'll, it will be. I, I guarantee it'll, it'll be the next. In, I think the next Olympics uh, in two Olympics time are, are back in Australia. Uh, I think it's in thirty-two, if I'm correct. Um, okay. So I think cricket will be there then, and you'll see the IPL or the twenty twenty cricket over there. Um, whether that's going to help, I don't really know because I, I, I can't see them showing that on TV during the Olympics that often. Um, they're going to be more want to do the athletics and the swimming and all the traditional sports and you know, to commit two hours or three hours of your time to watch one game of cricket that you've never even seen in your life. Maybe it might build some interest. Uh, you're going to get some degree of fans, but if I wasn't a cricket fan and had the option of watching cricket and athletics, I'm probably going to turn over and watch the athletics. That's fair. Yep. I, I think even in 2028 in the LA games, they're, they're considering introducing um, cricket and T20 in specific, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, it, it, it'll work in LA as well because you know, there's so much cricket fighting played in California now. So it would definitely work as a sport and it's a three-hour game. So it's 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 made for TV. Um, right. They might want to maybe just cut the rules a little bit somehow to speed the game up a little bit. But 
uh, it's definitely a game that would work on TV. We know it works on TV. Just would it work in the Olympics? Um, also curious about, um, you know, I've, I've read your thoughts about this as well, and I've read other cricketers as well that have mentioned that when you were, you know, in your time when you were a shield cricketer, um, the pay was such that you had to do other jobs to make sure, you know, you were doing well. Brett Lee has said similar things. Uh, and comparing that era of cricket to today, it, it feels like the uh, professionalism is definitely, you know, a little better because they are able to, you know, sustain themselves using, whether it's playing T20 leagues or just playing, um, you know, nationally for their sides. So there is a perception that the quality of cricket in the average player in, let's say, the late 90s or 2000s is probably, was probably slightly lower than the average cricketer today. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's something that I've talked to a lot of, you know, people outside of cricket, like fans, but curious as to what uh, an ex-player thinks about this. Yeah, so I can tell you that my my highest earning year as a first-class cricketer, so just playing from a state, was something like $32,000 a year a season, um, wow. which is not enough to live on. So we would, I worked in, a, in, a, in bars for 15 years while I was playing first-class cricket. There were days where I would bowl 25 overs and then walk off the field, have a quick shower and go and work in a pub until one o'clock in the morning and then get up for the second day's game and go up another 20 hours the next day and then go back to work that night again in the bar again. Um, and then in the off-season, I'd, I'd play my club cricket in England and earn almost just as much in club cricket over there as I would um, playing first-class cricket in Australia. So I was playing, literally playing 11 months a year um, just to make a living and still just getting by. Um which is why all the guys back in those days um, were, were working a job, basically, unless, unless you were playing for Australia. Uh, even the guys didn't earn a ton of money playing for Australia back then, but there was enough to get them by and with, with sponsors and stuff on the side. So if you were just a first-class cricketer, you were working. You had another job because uh, you couldn't survive otherwise. And today, obviously, they don't need to work, um, which is concerning a little bit because um, careers are short. These days, I was lucky. I had an almost 18-year career in first-class cricket. Um, not a lot of guys are going to have 18-year careers anymore. They're going to make a lot of money in maybe in three or four years, but um, hopefully they're being well-managed and they've got some good people around them and they're investing that money wisely. Um, the professionalism, yes, I agree. It, it, it has to advance because you wouldn't be able to play as much cricket as they do now and travel as much as they do and keep yourself fit. So I'm assuming now, I don't know, but I'm assuming there's more support staff around individuals. Um, there's certainly more around the team because you just look at team photos now. It looks like there's 20 extra people in the, in the team. Um, the the, the money is fantastic. I, I got nothing, no problem with people earning money. I think they should, when you're, when you're bringing in television money of billions and billions of dollars like the IPL does and cricket around the world does now, the players deserve to get some of that money. Um, I, I do worry about what happens to the 26-year-old kid that just got dropped from his IPL contract and doesn't really have a first-class contract in his own country. Now what does he do for the next 10, 15 years? You know, a lot of guys gave up first-class cricket just to become T20 cricketers. Um, some guys have opted not to play for their countries at all uh, in test match cricket just to play T20 cricket. Um, you hope that they are making a lot, a lot of money so they can put a bit of money in the bank. But I know for a fact that some of those guys aren't making tons and tons of money. They're hoping to, um, but they're going to be 30 years old and never have worked a day in their life. And they don't have good people around. They're going to just be sitting around doing nothing for the rest of their life.
Yeah, um, that's, that's a fascinating point because I, I think uh, you're right. I mean, I think there definitely are people who, you know, at let's say 28 or 30, when they realize that there, there's no chance of getting back into whatever franchise cricket, um, they're almost starting from scratch, right? As compared to uh, players of your era, yourself, you said, you know, you already knew how to manage yourself outside of the cricket. And then it's a very important skill. And I think that's definitely something that I think more and more boards are thinking about. I know in India in particular, in NCA, they, they're talking about having, you know, more well-rounded development of a cricketer so that they're not just smart on the field or off the field, but they're, they know what to do off the field, how to manage money and, and fame and all of that. Yeah, the support structures are so important, especially now. You know, but when I think back to how the world has changed the last two years, uh, and it's now for sports uh, sports persons, you know, with the bubble, you know, that's a big thing. And we have seen over the last few months, um, you know, cricketers from pretty much every part of the globe uh, are taking breaks, are just saying that I'm going to like take a break from the game for a while we've had ben stokes we've had chris gale in the ipl recently and with the ashes coming up you know a lot of the english players are very hesitant um you know for another extended bubble so given all of this do you think their players need more support structures in place or a stronger support structure in place than what they do have now the situation, yeah, it's a give I and take situation because you know the players are in bubbles because they're choosing to be franchise cricketers. Um, so you don't have to travel the world all year playing cricket if you don't want to. You could just be playing test match cricket and be in two bubbles a year. But guys are choosing now to be franchise cricketers and travel around the world on a full time basis, which unfortunately in times like now means you're going to be in bubbles. Um, the, in, the England-India Test Series is a classic example. Guys said, well, we're sick of being in a bubble in, in England, but let's go to the IPL and go in another bubble straight away, you know, six days later. It's, to me, that doesn't make sense. You know, when you, when you abandon a Test Match Series and then you go and play in the IPL and you're sitting in a bubble over there as well, um, that, to me, doesn't make sense. So that's, that's hurting the game of cricket because traditionally... Test match cricket is still the traditional form of the game and what players should be aspiring to. Unfortunately, some aren't. Some see the money rather than the representing their country as the important thing. Again, I have no problems with that. That's up to them. Um, but we've got to be really careful of the amount of cricket that we're asking players to play. Forget the fact that they're in bubbles. Um, I know they're trying to cram in as many. Every country now wants to have their own T20 league or T10 league or 100 ball league. You know, they're trying to reinvent the game every every two years now. And players have the option to opt out to not play in, in when there's no bubble. But they don't. They want to get all the money they can. So if they choose to play now during the time that there is bubbles, I think it's on the player just to, to put up with them and keep playing. Now, the support you need now is, is for mental safety and the mental well-being of the players. So you, you, you can't just throw people in a room for two weeks and expect right. them to look after themselves. There has to be some sort of way that there's some sort of support system for them. I was I was watching on people that I know still in the game, but um, uh, one of the young Dutch guys that just went over to play in the West Indies T20 in the West Indian League, and he sat in his hotel room for the first two weeks when he arrived. He was allowed out for a game, and he's basically back in his hotel room, and he didn't do anything for the, the whole time he was in the Caribbean except for sit in his room and walk on the cricket field. That gets tiresome after a while, I imagine. It, it can't be easy. Um, 
when you're not in a bubble, you're out traveling around, you're looking at the country that you're playing in, you get to go out for dinner, you get to socialize with other people from that country. And um, so the, I understand the bubble's tough, but you choose to travel the world um, playing these leagues in this, in this time that we're in. Um, I think you've got to copy yourself and then it's up to the associations and the countries to make sure that support system is there for their mental well-being. It, it, it's it's funny because as fans we want cricket all the time and uh and it's easy to forget the amount of sacrifice that not just players but the sports staff umpires all of the them. families at home waiting for their husbands right. and wives to come home you know the women don't be in the same boat now they're, they're right. in bubbles as right. well so they're, they're playing right. more and more cricket around the world now so we tend to forget about the girls as much but and there's a test series going on now in, up in, in, in Queensland between Australia and India. And those girls are in bubbles and they're away from their families as well. So it's not just the player, as you say, it's the, the coaching staff, but it's the people at home. It's their yeah. wives and girlfriends and husbands and that are worried that their playing partner might get sick and could catch COVID right now and then bring it back to their family. And you know, there's a lot of stress on everyone at the moment. So I, I totally understand why players want to take a break. But right. still, they still have the option not to force themselves into needing a break. They can just say, look, I'm not going to play for the next month. Well, I hope for all our sake that uh, things start getting better soon and that uh, the, administrators, uh, the administrators also are conscious of all the stress that, and pressure uh, that these teams are under and they're more you know, considerate of scheduling. Um, yeah. So the ashes, is going to be, the ashes is going to be a nightmare. Um, mm. If you look at what's happening in Australia right now, um, every time they get a case, they shut down a state or close the borders. I really can't yeah. see how they're going to run an Ashes in a, a five-test match series and, and then a one-day series after that um, and have a third country come into, the, come into Australia to play either one or two tests or well, Bangladesh was meant to be there or Afghanistan was meant to be there, sorry. Um, I, I just don't see how they're going to travel around and have people at games and have 50,000 people at the SCG or 80,000 people at the MCG. And there's going to come a time when you, you just got to say, um, like, like we're doing in the US now, um, you'll know if you watch college football this afternoon, there'll be 100,000 people at Michigan um, watching, right. watching football. Then none of them are wearing masks. Um, the only beauty is that a lot of the colleges in the US now are making the kids get vaccinated before they go back to school. Um, vaccination is the key for me. You, you just got to get vaccinated, get a, a, a majority of your population, whatever, wherever you, you may be, vaccinated. So we can get back to some sort of normality because at the moment, nothing's normal. Nowhere in the world. Right. So, Colin, I think the one other question that comes to mind is, is um, you know, and I've obviously not played cricket in Australia or England, but um, from what I read, the culture in each of these countries is very different. If you're a club cricketer in England, you're sort of part of their society. You help, you know, you work with them. You maybe teach kids in that club. As compared to Australia, where it's more, um, I don't know if it's more formal setup. I, I don't know how to, how to uh, you know, classify that. And then you, I believe you also played in Netherlands. So help us understand like the difference in cultures and, and how you felt uh where you felt more, most comfortable? Yeah, um, I was lucky. Yeah, I, I was very lucky to play cricket for a living for so long and then get the chance to travel around the world. Back in the day when I was traveling around the world, it was a lot more relaxing than it is now. Um, club cricket in Australia, um, to, the, the pathway to playing for your country really starts at school. 
um, for me, it started in, uh, I, I went to Sunshine West High School um, and I was I was picked as a 15 year old in, in the Western suburbs high school cricket team to play against the North East and the West and North East and South. And from there, I got picked in the Victorian under 16 cricket team, schools cricket team. And you played a national championships. We played ours up in Sydney. Uh, this is when the first time I played against Mark and Steve Waugh back, back then. Uh, and then from that, I was selected in the Australian under-16 cricket team. We didn't play any games back in the days. You just got a hat. You got a green hat. You had to sew your own badge on it. <laughs> and that was your Australian hat that you got. And then from there, you, you, the recognition starts to come your way because you're now in, you're in the system now because you, you're still playing representative cricket. Um, then I went from that, I went to play cricket at Footscray, which is a district club team um play for your state in, in australia you got to play first grade cricket um and that's what which was part of that setup um by the time i was 17 and a half i was playing first grade cricket uh for footscray and then at 18 19 years of age i made my debut for victoria uh, and then from then i played a couple against victoria um got dropped from the squad completely after my first year, moved to South Australia, uh, which was not done so much back in those days, but I, I still thought I, I could play first first class cricket. Uh, spent four years in South Australia and then moved down to Tasmania, had eight more years down there, and then my last year and a half back in Victoria. Um, so that's the pathway to go from being in school to playing for your country. Uh, in, in Holland, um, when I was there, again, it was over 20 years ago now since I played in Holland, but it was... It was just a club setup. There was there was a national team, and I actually played one game for the national team um, back in '97, I think it was. But really, it was just a club cricket setup, um, and then each club was responsible for bringing through their youth up to their first grade level. So the club I played for, a Harlem and um, uh, Roden Roden Bit Red and White. Um, they had under fives, under six, under sevens, under eights. It was amazing. If the father played cricket, the wife and all the kids played cricket as well. And so all the kids that played for all the clubs literally have been in that club their entire life. Uh, and then they've been, if they've been lucky enough to be any good, they've gone on to play for, their, for the national team. Um, so I loved that setup. That was a really good family setup. And then in England, um, I think they miss out on so many good cricketers. Um, because of the clubs, the way it's set up over there. Um, you have to play county cricket in England to obviously play for, for England. Um, but I played almost 10 years of club cricket in the, up in the leagues in England, and I played against some superstar players who were never given the opportunity to play county cricket because no one ever came to see them play. Um, they came through the school system, and then they sort of were, they might not have been in the right county or in the right area, and no one really came to watch them play. Um, and they missed out on playing. So they just became superstar club cricketers or Lancashire League, where I played most of my, most of my time. They become legends in the Lancashire League, but they've never really got a chance to play county cricket or, or international cricket. And I'm sure England, to this day, are missing out on players because of that setup. Um, it's a different pathway over there. They expect you to come through the county under 15s and the county under 17s and then the 19s, and then you get into the county second team. Well, you might play some minor county cricket, um, but really, if you're not playing for the county, for example, Lancashire, where I played all my cricket in, in that county, if you're not in the, the junior system from the age of 13 or 14, you're probably never going to play for Lancashire. 
uh, which is a shame because, as I say, there was a ton of players I played against in the leagues so that could have played first-class cricket. And then in India, I imagine just everybody plays cricket. <laughs> There's like 50 <laughs> first-class teams in India. Yeah, I think in India it's sort of a mix of you know uh, school cricket and club cricket because there's definitely academies as what they'll call it. You know, there's very good academies around you know various cities which will produce a number of good cricketers and and you know um, you have to sort of almost audition to get into those academies. And then of course there are some schools. I know at least back in the late '90s it was a case where. Uh, Mohammad Azaruddin, for example, moved from school A to B in Hyderabad because that was reputed as the cricket school of the yep. city. So it feels like it's a, it's a little bit of a mix in India, but uh, I think it's definitely, um, it's obviously evolved for sure. Uh, but, but it's fascinating to see that Netherlands, even that time had under five and under seven, you know, that, that level. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was, and, and most of it was just on a, on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning before we, we would play our game, all the kids would be out there to be like 50 pitches up and stumps all over the field and just hitting soft balls around, just introducing the game of cricket. There was no structured play going on. It was just introducing kids to the game, boys and girls. There's, a, there's, there's probably as, as many women play cricket in Holland as there are men, probably more. Um, and, and, and that's just because that's part of their upbringing is if, if their dad played cricket, the whole family plays cricket. So that's why right. their female structure is so strong over there as well. Well, Colin, we, we've taken a lot of your time today and I do appreciate you, you know, spending your Saturday morning, a little bit of a Saturday morning with us. Uh, but as we wrap this up, uh, I'm just very curious um, in, in your current role, because it's, it's a non-cricketing role that you're in, are there ever times when you're talking to someone and then you mention, oh, I used to play as, uh, cricket for Australia. Do you come across that a lot? And how do they react? Uh, I, well, pe- people that I work with know who I was back in the old days and they've all Googled me. And um, so they've seen all their hair and they laugh at me occasionally. And then just every now and then a guest will, will come into the resort and they'll see me and I'll, I'll get that sideways glance and they'll think, and I'll be like, talking. He looks familiar. <laughs> and they don't, and they sort of, on, on my name tag, it just says Colin. I don't, doesn't have right. Colin Miller. People sort of think, eh, they could be him. He, I don't know. He, what's he doing? Why would he be living in Vegas? Because when I left Australia. Hopefully he doesn't have blue hair it, anymore. It wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't really announced <laughs> that I was leaving Australia. I just left. Right. So it, it was a few years before people realized that I didn't live in Australia anymore. Um, and there have been occasions where I've been talking to people who are from Melbourne, where I actually grew up and I've, I've, I talked to one guy for about 45 minutes one day, and in the end, he said, where are you from? And I said, like, I'm from Melbourne. <laughs> and they're open to you, where you're from? He goes, oh, I thought you had a bit of an accent. He didn't. He still <laughs> didn't put one and one together who I was. So I don't tell people, but um, some yeah. people find out. There was, a, there was an Indian family at the hotel a couple of years ago, and they had an issue in their room, so I went to fix it. And the lady in the room, actually the mother, recognised me. And wow. um, I spent like an hour and a half in that room with the whole family getting photos done and <laughs> signing autographs and had a bit of lunch with them. Uh, that doesn't happen very much. I mean, it's been over 20 odd years now since I retired. So you know, people That's move true. on. I mean, we, we I've, ourselves. I've been retired longer than I played now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of uh, the newer, the younger fans probably would not recognize you because as you said, it's been 20 years. Uh, but we do. We, we are uh, a yeah, lot if you, of. Older. If you're in your thirties, you might know me. If you're in your forties, yes. you're more chance of knowing me. <laughs> yes, yes. So that is the case. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad you're happy and settled, and you know, enjoying 
your family life and your work life. It sounds like it's great. And I actually read in an interview that you did sometime back that you still have other Australian cricketer teammates of yours visiting from time to time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, there's um, the guys pop through occasionally with their families. Steve Law has been in town with his whole family a couple of years ago. I mean, Fleming was here a little while ago. Um, I catch up with guys on these sort of forums sometimes as well. Right. Um, and just see what's going on. I, I wake up in the morning and I, I read the, the national newspapers back home um, to see what's happening in Australia. I, I, I follow you know, quick info every day just to see what's happening in the cricket world. Just because I like to keep in touch. Doesn't right. mean I want to play the game anymore. I don't want to play. Well, I'd rather go and play golf every day of the week if I could. Um, but I love. I still like to keep up with what's happening around the world. So I, I do like to see these young people coming through and having the experiences that I had 25, 30 years ago. And they're just doing it now and, and, and getting to see as much as the world as I did. One of the great things with cricket is you can travel the world and play a game for a living with, with any right. mates, and that's not a bad way to have a living. And you can still do your part. I mean, you, you might be, you might not be in a cricketing professionally. You're not professionally involved in cricket at the moment, but who knows? You know, you can still teach cricket to whoever yeah. pops by the hotel to show them. Like a, I said, who, who knows game. what's going to happen down the road? If, uh, if if Cricket America want me to get involved, I'm more than happy to get involved and do whatever I can for them uh, uh, and and help this country advance the game. Because I know you guys live here and you live in, in New York. Um, but there's, there's a lot of cricket being played on that part of the world over there now. So it's a game just waiting to explode in this country. Just got to make sure they get the right formula to get it together. Right. And I'm really hopeful that uh, at least my daughter uh, will play cricket here in the U.S. one day. But that's that's all, you know, kind of a pipe dream at the moment. But I'm really hopeful that the way things are going, we'll get there where America really gets into cricket. I'm sorry. I hope so. And I, I haven't looked at the scores this morning yet, but I, I saw a headline that the Australian girls might be making a comeback in the test match over there. Mm -hmm. I know India put on close to 300 in the first innings in a rain-affected match. So hopefully Australia can get a draw out of it. And I think it looks like they're making a bit of a few runs themselves. Yeah, it seems so we'll pretty see even at the moment. Yeah. I'm going to get off get off here in a minute. And I'll, I'll log on the quick info and see what's happening in the world. Well, we're going to let you go. <laughs> Uh, but Colin, thank, thank you again so much uh, for your time. It, it, it really is uh, a pleasure for us uh, to speak to, you know, someone we have watched on TV growing up and, you know, someone we've associated with the great Australian team of that era. Uh, so thank you for coming on and sharing your experiences and your thoughts on the game. Love it, guys. Really nice to meet you both. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Colin for joining us and talking about his time as an international cricketer. Meanwhile, if you enjoy this conversation, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you for listening, and from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.